Well, so glad you are here tonight. Just a couple of uh, little housekeeping things. We will, I'll be sending around a, um, a just a sign-in sheet on a, uh, on a clipboard. So if that comes by you, just write your name, no big deal. And uh, just, again, we're just trying to catch, see how we're doing in terms of our, our numbers, but you just write your name, that'd be great, and I'll, that'll be coming around. Um, great meal again tonight, and we'll have a great meal next week, so I hope you'll be back with us for um, gourmet tacos, I understand. Um, we are uh, really excited next week to welcome Dr. Michael Staples, who is the president of Scripture Union. And uh, Scripture Union is a, a, a very old, I mean, like, gosh, 150-year-old institution that uh, distributes uh, material uh, to help study scriptures all over the world. In fact, one of my great mentors has used uh, Scripture Union materials for over 50 years in his own private devotions. And come to find out that the president lives in Nocatee. And so uh, we had just had a great uh, breakfast and invited him to come, and he'll be sharing with us um, about Scripture Union and about reading Scripture during Lent particularly. So I hope that you'll join us and bring a friend. Uh, we will be done at 744 next week, just like we will this week. So uh, it is my very distinct uh, privilege to uh, welcome Dean Kate Moorhead uh, to Church of Our Savior. Uh, you've been the uh, Dean of the Cathedral of St. John for how long now? Gosh, eight, eight years, right? Fantastic. And, uh, and, and so just a thriving ministry. We'd love to hear about that. Uh, also want to make sure that you stop by the uh, bookstore on the way out. Uh, just um, we, we set it up like, like they do at Universal, where you have to go out through the shop uh, uh, of the ride. But I uh, just hope that I, I have a couple of Kate's uh, materials uh, on, on my shelf, and I found them very helpful, and I hope that you will too. In fact, I think there's some Lenten, specifically Lenten material back there as well, so I commend that. Uh, to you and hope that you will uh, give to those efforts. Uh, will you t- tell us again, tell me again, what, what are the proceeds, they don't go, you told me they don't go in your pocket, so what, yeah. It's through a ministry called Family Promise, so mm-hmm. the Pumbles family live at the cathedral for a few weeks a year. Okay, Family Promise, well I'll, I'll get you to tell us more about that. Well, we have um, had communion, we've worshipped, and we have prayed, so we're going to ask you to Thank you. give us the word. All right, thank all right. you so much, Joe. Let's make sure you can all hear me. Can you all hear me? All right. Thanks for for having me today. I'm so blessed to be with you. Yes, the bookstore, um, the proceeds go to a program called Family Promise, which is uh, we have homeless families that live with us at the church for um, three weeks out of the year, and then they live in other churches throughout the city. So that's what the proceeds go to. Um, but it is such a blessing to be with you. Guess what I did last week? Can anyone guess? You'll never guess. No, clo- kind of close. So it was an adventurous thing, parachuting. Oh, I went dog sledding in the Yukon, where the temperature is minus 25 degrees. And I was terrified. Uh, my, my husband and my son had done it for two years in a row, but my husband had to have neck surgery. So my 13-year-old son said, Mom, I have to go back. I want to work at this place. I, voila, he made a big case. And I said, okay, 
I love you, Max. I'm going to go with you. So we actually went out into the wilderness in the snow, and we camped for two nights and spent three days out in this land, which is completely off the grid. There was moments when I could not see another human soul anywhere. There's a joke they have in the Yukon, because there's so few people there, that two guys were dog sledding and they ran into each other and they cooked a fire and had dinner. And then they saw a helicopter flying over and one of the guys said, it's getting too crowded around here, I gotta move up north. (laughs) But what I saw out there was this beauty that was beyond description. It was more beautiful than any natural beauty I've ever seen in my life. Absolutely spectacularly beautiful. Although I was absolutely freezing cold, uh, the beauty was so spectacular that it caused me to uh, consider God in a new way, how, how magnificent God's creation is. Well, tonight I want to talk to you about prayer. And when we sit down to pray, in some ways we are also on an adventure like I was when I went dog sledding in the Yukon. And it can be that scary because we're actually going out into a land that most of us don't frequent that often. If you really want to sit down in silence with God, you enter a new existence. And it is another landscape that can be incredibly beautiful, but it can be also very perilous. And those are some of the things that I don't feel like we've talked enough about. So tonight, I want to talk to you about what happens when we pray, and particularly about temptation and distraction, because sometimes in Lent, now's the time we talk about that stuff, okay? So when I sit down to pray and try to be silent for maybe a 20-minute period, Some of the things that pop up in my head, and I bet they're similar to some of the things that pop up in your head is, oh my gosh, I forgot to turn on the the washer. I was put the washer in, but I didn't press the power button. Oh, I forgot to return an email. Is that some noise? What was that noise? You know what? Yesterday, I really messed up when I talked to this person. I sounded mean. And on and on and on. So when we enter the landscape of contemplative prayer, when we're not reading or doing anything at all, but simply encountering the presence of God, the first thing that comes up most of the time is temptation, which is a form of distraction. So the first Sunday in Lent, every single year, we have a reading from the Bible. Does anyone remember what that reading is? Jesus does something. Right after his baptism, first thing he does, what does he do? Goes out in the wilderness. And he goes out in the wilderness because if you're going to hear your own mind, you got to get away from everything, right? So he went out into a place of total silence. I'll tell you, the Yukon with the snow... I've never heard such profound silence in my life, just incredible silence. So Jesus goes out into probably a hot and dry desert, sits down, and immediately, well, we don't know. He's in there for 40 days. But at some point, he hears the voice of the devil, Satan. The tempter is another translation, who tries to pull him away from God's purposes. Jesus is fasting. devil says, eat. 
devil says, bow down before me. Throw yourself off the temple. Test God. And every time, Jesus responds with scripture and says no. Now, why did Jesus do this first? Why did he go out into the desert before anything else? To get ready. Preparation. Exactly. If we're going to follow Jesus... We've got to get to know our own minds before we can help anybody else. And we've got to get to know the voice of the tempter in our own lives. Because unlike Jesus, I think I don't have three temptations. I have more like 500, maybe 5,000. But I've got to get to know the voices of distraction and the voices of destruction. Because our minds are not always healthy. None of us. We all have a lot going on in our minds. And if we're going to truly follow Christ, we've got to get to know the landscape of our minds so that when we sit down to pray, we can identify what is God and what is not God. We have to be able to tell the difference. You are going to have thoughts that are incredibly beautiful and inspiring and are going to draw you closer to Jesus, and you are going to have thoughts that are incredibly distracting, and you are going to have thoughts that are destructive and hateful and mean. Every human being has them because we are all in a state of fallenness. We're sinful creatures. It doesn't mean we're bad. It means we're tempted. And like Jesus, who was human, he didn't sin, but he was tempted. And so we don't need to sin, but we're going to be tempted, and probably we're going to mess up and sin because we're not as good as Jesus, but we try, right? Back in the 14th century, there was a saint named Ignatius. He was a very successful soldier, and he loved to party and had a, you know, a great life. And then he was wounded, badly wounded. And he was forced to lie down in bed for months and months and months at a time. And it was in that crisis, which often happens to us as human beings, it's in the tough stuff that we really grow, right? Lying in bed there, he happened to pull out a Bible and he started to read about God. But not only did he read about Jesus, he began to do what later would be called Ignatian prayer, which is where you imagine yourself as one of the disciples or someone who loved Jesus, and you live into the scripture, imagining yourself within it. So for the past three or four years, I've been doing Ignatian exercises about a certain person in the Gospels who's particularly touched my heart. And this person is Mary Magdalene. It struck me as a woman who was trying to be a leader that I needed some kind of a role model in the scripture. So I started looking. And you know what I realized? There's a million Marys in the gospel, aren't there? There's Mary of Salome, and there's Mary of Clopas, Mary the mother of Joseph, and Mary the virgin, and Mary the prostitute. And then I began to ask myself, wait a minute. Why are we calling, especially Mary the virgin and Mary the prostitute, right? They're the two most important women in the whole story. But why do we call them based on whether or not they had sex or not? I mean, we don't say John the Virgin and Peter the guy who had a lot of relationships. 
So I started to look into the scripture and, and try to think about what's going on here. And I realized that there's no word for prostitute in the Gospels at all. So if Mary Magdalene wasn't a prostitute, was she a sinner? So I looked for that. Nope, doesn't ever say she was a sinner. I realize that we've gotten her confused with some other people. There's a woman who washes Jesus' feet with her tears and wipes them with her hair. We say that was Mary Magdalene. Nope, wasn't. There's a woman caught in adultery who's going to be stoned to death. We thought that was Mary Magdalene. Nope. Never called Mary Magdalene. But what the scriptures does say in Luke chapter 8 is that Mary Magdalene was possessed by seven demons and that Jesus healed her. Now, back in the time of the Gospels, the concept of the demon was a very broad concept, an umbrella concept. In fact, in all of the scripture, there were very few words compared to the English language today. So every time we translate the scripture, we're taking these huge words and trying to decide between these very precise little English words. So we're limiting the meaning every time we translate, right? So the word demon was anytime someone acted bizarre, but you didn't see why. So it could be someone with epilepsy, right? Could be someone who was schizophrenic and talking to voices and people that no one could see. Could be someone who stopped eating and started getting really skinny for no reason. Could be someone that started cutting themselves. Sometimes demoniacs in the gospel bruised themselves with stones, right? They often were like lepers. They were pushed aside because they were considered frightening and nobody understood. So... Demon meant a whole host of both physical and mental health issues. And if Mary Magdalene had seven different things going on, she was a pretty sick woman. So there's no way she would have been a prostitute because A, nobody would have wanted to touch her. And B, she was probably way too sick to earn any money if they had, right? So I began to think again about the devil, and demons. And I wondered to myself, you know, in the Episcopal Church, we always pride ourselves in bringing our brains to church. We don't ask you to check your brain at the door, right? We're proud of our reason. But for some reason, in the past few decades, we've completely ignored about a third of the miracles that Jesus did because they were exorcisms. And they made us uncomfortable. So we kind of, hmm, let's talk about the epistle this week. But now that we're beginning to embrace quantum physics, now that we're beginning to realize in science that there's a lot of things that influence us that we cannot see, I think we can be really intelligent and love science and also begin to reintroduce to ourselves the concept that there might be unclean spirits and unclean thoughts and unclean temptations that affect all of us, right? So when we sit down to pray, how do we distinguish between what is of God and what is something else? Well, I, be I began to think and pray about this a lot, and I tried to listen to my own mind a lot. I think one of the reasons why this fascinated me so much is because when I was growing up, my dad was very, very sick with clinical depression, and he was a, a good lawyer and a smart man, but he would go to sleep 
in bed and not get out of bed for like three months. And it scared us. It scared my mother and I. And back then, we didn't know what to do. Today, we would have medication. We'd put them in the hospital. We'd, but we just didn't know what to do. But my dad loved God. And he would say that God kept him alive. Because he had these thoughts that said, you need to die. You're such a bad person. You need to die. But he also knew that God would not want him to kill himself, that that was a sin. So I remember very early on as a little girl praying to God and saying, dear God, thank you for life. And realizing that it was God that kept my dad alive. But I also realized that my dad was having thoughts that were not good. And, and I wanted to help him, but I didn't know how. And I remember going to church and how loving the people were and how safe they felt and how sturdy. They were always there, unlike my dad who would kind of disappear. And so I went to church like crazy <laughs> all during my childhood and adolescence and look where I am today. <laughs> but I really think that we need to reclaim this language and to reintroduce mental health and spiritual health. They're not separate. They're all part of the same thing. And I actually think that it can help those who struggle with mental health issues to have a saint like Mary Magdalene. Because, you know, when she was healed, she became one of Jesus' closest companions. She's the only person present at the cross in all four of the Gospels. And she's the first one to hear the resurrection story. And Jesus says to her, go and tell everybody I've risen to, to her. Which is crazy because women were not even considered human. They couldn't testify in court. If Jesus was trying to make a case, it was a strange case. But I began to think to myself, okay, let's say that there are unclean spirits that influence us. Let's say that there is such a thing as temptation. How do we know what it sounds like? Well, I, I came up with a few clues. Do we need to pass that on to these guys? Okay. One of the clues about how to distinguish between temptation and, and good thoughts is that the devil or temptation is never original. The devil is not a creator. He's part of the created order, right? So if you have a thought that's repetitive, that hits you over and over and over again, it's most likely not from God. Whereas all inspiration, all creativity, all new ideas, that would come from God. But if you have a thought that runs around in your head like a broken record, I'm stupid. Oh, there I go again. I'm overweight, I'm blah, blah, blah. If you have something that runs around in your head like a broken record, that's temptation. Another thing about temptation is that the tempter always thinks that things are a crisis. Everything's a crisis, you gotta do something about it. Right now, you gotta respond to that nasty email with another nasty email, right now. You gotta blurt out whatever you're mad about. Everything is going to hell in a handbasket right now. If you're thinking like that, it's probably not of God. God is the one who made the mountains. God is the one who forms a child in the mother's womb for nine months. God doesn't need things done right now. If, if it's a crisis, it's probably not of God. 
Temptation is also a great distractor. I think that the darkness would want us so distracted that we don't really ever speak to our spouse and we don't realize that our marriage is falling apart. Or we don't realize that our work environment has become toxic because we're so busy worrying and worrying and worrying and running and running and running. One of the greatest temptations of this day and age is our simply our busyness, which prevents us from ever reflecting on ourselves. Do you know if you stick a frog in a pot of water and you begin to heat it on the stove, if you do it really, really slowly, the frog who's capable of jumping out won't jump out because it can't really tell that the heat is going up. And you can boil the frog to death that way. I think the tempter wants us so busy that we're not realizing that things aren't working in our lives. And we're not stopping to, to make sure that we've told the people we love that we love them. And we're just running so hard that we don't realize that we're hurting ourselves or something isn't working in our lives. And the, the last clue that I think is an easy one is that the devil doesn't love. That's pretty easy to tell, huh? If you're having a thought that is not loving towards yourself or to someone else, it's probably not from God. So I think we can ask ourselves, is this, is this something that is loving or is it not? Because if it isn't, let's look at it again. So when you sit down to pray, you're entering the Yukon, or you're entering your desert, and you've got all these thoughts that are going to come up because the American mind is so overstimulated, right? I mean, how much stuff is thrown at you every day? Do you turn on the radio in your car? It's like, bling, 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 bling. you know, you turn on your email. I don't know about you, but I get about 100 emails a day, maybe 200. Uh, think of all the words that are flying at you. Watch television and the images. Have you been to the movies lately? My gosh, it feels like everything's happening all the time like this. So our minds are hyperactive and oversensitized. So when we sit down to pray, it's totally normal for your mind to just be going, la, 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 jumping around like a monkey. And my advice is if, if you want to try to do this contemplative prayer where you go into the landscape of the unknown, be gentle. A runner doesn't set off on a marathon on the first day, right? So if you're going to start contemplative, quiet prayer, silent prayer, I would say try five minutes. And then in addition to starting slow, be really, really nice to yourself. The fact that you sat down for five minutes is a wonderful thing. No matter what happens, no matter what comes up in your head, you did a wonderful thing. But in reality, if we want to be close to God, we've got to figure out a way to spend time with God, right? I mean, my husband and I, we've been married 23 years, and marriage is work, right? I mean, I love the guy, but if I decided I was never going to spend any time with him, how would things go? So if we say God is important to us, we've got to figure out time. In fact, time is a much more valuable commodity today than money in most of our lives. If you can give God some serious time, you're making a wonderful investment. But it's scary because your mind's going to jump around a lot. Another thing that has worked for me is to write down your thoughts. 
A lot of neurologists are saying this today. Because our minds are so hyperactive in America, because anxiety is so prevalent, do you know every generation that's born is two or three times more likely to be anxious than the generation before in this country? Because we're so overstimulated. So when you have these thoughts, write them down. The tempter doesn't want to be brought into the light. It wants to hide in the shadows of your mind. If you write it down, you can read it. And when you read it, you'll say, that is so dumb. I can't believe I thought that. You'll still think it again, but every time you think it, it'll be clearer to you what it is, right? There's a wonderful neurologist whose name is Dr. Caroline Leaf. She's a devout Christian and biblical scholar and a neurologist. And she talks about in Philippians, St. Paul says, anything that is good, anything that is pure, anything that is beautiful, think on these things. Remember that passage? Whatever is true, whatever is pure, whatever is good, think on these things. Her argument is that you can actually train the human brain, like you can train your body, to turn to the good thoughts. You can train your mind to be grateful by practicing giving thanks. You can turn your mind to be grateful whenever you walk outside to find something beautiful. You can train your mind to see the beauty. You can train your mind to see the good. Or you can actually train your mind to focus on the negative. You can train your mind to focus on being hopeless or down. They're both things that grow. You actually create more neurons in a certain area when you practice that area. So if you want to be grateful, start just being grateful and you'll get more grateful. And if you want to be despairing, start being despairing and you'll keep being more despairing because your brain will learn and it'll create neurocircuitry that moves in that direction. So I really believe that our lives of prayer are so huge and they're the first thing that we need to do, like Jesus, the first thing that he did. The first thing we need to do when we get baptized or when we become fully conscious as adult Christians is to walk out into the landscape of our minds and to begin to know what that landscape looks like so that when we are tempted, we can say, I know you, not going to buy into that. No. How am I doing on time, folks? I know we got to get done at 7.40, something or other. Okay, we're only 7.25? 19. Oh, great. Okay. So let's talk about these exorcisms for a minute because they help us deal with these demons when they come to us, okay? So when Jesus does an exorcism, do you all remember reading some of them in the Gospels? Okay. Does Jesus get into a conversation with the demon? No. He speaks very directly. He says, go, get out. Ex, orcism means go out. So the demon is living in the person, it leaves. So one of the things I think is important in our lives of prayer is if we're having a worry or an anxious thought, we don't need to climb in bed with it and give it a massage which is what a lot of us do. I'm feeling so worried today, and I wonder what I'm worried about. Well, I'm worried about this, and I'm worried about that, and I'm worried about that. Well, 
there is some value to therapy in telling someone that and getting it out into the light in a positive way. But just ruminating on it by yourself for long periods of time isn't going to help you get rid of it, right? Jesus doesn't say, demon, tell me about yourself. What's bothering you? How can I help you? He's rather harsh. He says, go, get out, leave. I'm not going to engage with you, which I think is um, kind of counterintuitive for us nice people, right? We think we're supposed to to learn about everything and get to know everything. But I think you can get trapped in that. You can get trapped in, in massaging your, your worries or your negative thinking, and you just want to say no. Another powerful form of temptation is, of course, addiction. And in some ways, addiction is an easier demon to identify because we can see it a little bit more clearly. Um, the alcoholic, for example, uh, it's easier to see that temptation for the outsider because they're drinking, and you can see if they're drinking or not drinking, right? When I was in my very first little church, it was in uh, South Carolina, Upper South Carolina. I was uh, 28 years old, uh, had a, a one-year-old, and uh, I would call my senior warden sometimes at night, and his voice would be very slurred. And I was worried about him. I thought maybe he'd had a stroke or something. Well, it took me about six months to realize that every time he came home from work, his wife greeted him at the door with a big glass of scotch, and all evening he drank scotch a lot. And he was, yeah, <laughs> truly. And, and he had rosacea, you know, where your skin gets really red, and he was starting to get the tremors. So gradually we put two and two together and realized that he had a problem. We brought him to a rehabilitation place. And uh, first this young woman comes in with a clipboard and says, Hi, Dewey, how you doing? Tell me about how much you drink. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And she was nodding and checking off things. And he kept bragging, saying, see, he was looking to me like, see, this is fine. Yeah, I drink almost a gallon of scotch a night. No problem. See, look, she thinks it's fine. I was like, okay. And then the young woman left. And the doctor came in. Now, he was a short man. His glasses were on the end of his nose like this. He didn't look like much, but man, was he a powerhouse. He sat down and he said, Dewey, look me right in the eye. I want you to know that you're poisoning your body. And if you keep drinking, you're going to die. This is what's happening to you. X, Y, Z, your liver shutting down blankety blank. He was the most straightforward man I've ever heard in my life. Jesus said in one of the passages, I don't come to bring peace but a sword. This man had a sword and he was cutting off this temptation. And Dewey was mad. He didn't want to hear it. We left. He was in a rage. He didn't want to come to church. But after about five or six months, he, he realized it was the truth and he went into treatment. He's been sober now for 19 years. Thanks be to God, he's still alive. But the way you deal with a demon is not by being nice and trying to make him feel better or say, you know, it's not that bad, but you might want to work on it. That would never have worked with him, never. It, ha it had to be tough love, had to be really tough. And I I've never forgotten that doctor because he was like a warrior. But there's all kinds of addiction. There's not just addiction to substances. There's addiction to worry. There's addiction to our jobs. There's all kinds of 
of things that we can become addicted to. So I encourage you when you begin to pray, and many of you have probably prayed a lot more than I have, but to enter that landscape knowing that it's like when Jesus says, I send you out like sheep in the midst of wolves, that when you pray, you're entering a spiritual battlefield. So no wonder it's hard. And no wonder you think of every reason not to do it. Believe me, I've come up with doozies. But it's really important. And it really, really bears fruit. I promise you that. So after Mary Magdalene is healed, she does the most amazing things. She actually shows us how to follow Jesus she practices the faith in a very beautiful way, which is kind of hidden in the Gospels. First of all, she practices what I like to call proximity. Have any of you read Richard Rohr, the Catholic priest? He writes some wonderful books, but he talks about if you're going to really know Jesus, you've got to give up your demons, but you've got to be repossessed by Jesus. Do you remember that um, story about the man with demons and Jesus says, if I send them out, but there's nothing to fill it, more will come back, right? So if you cast out your temptations, but you don't have anything to fill yourself with, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. So after you say no to your temptations, we have to invite Jesus to possess us or repossess us, to fill us with his love, with his generosity, with his kindness, with his self. And that's what Mary Magdalene did. As soon as she was healed, she said, I got to have more of this guy. I'm not going to leave him. I'm going to stick to him like glue. She and a bunch of other women, it says, provided for him out of their resources. Now, I don't know if Mary Magdalene had any resources as a demoniac. I find it hard to imagine that she did. But maybe some of the other women did. But I like to call them the providers. You know, we call the men the disciples. So I thought the women should have a name. How about the providers? So they go along with Jesus and they cook and they clean and they make sure he has a safe place to stay. They probably washed his clothes. But the main thing is she stuck close to him. So in your life, you're doing it right now. You're sticking close to him because you're here tonight. How can you stick close to Jesus besides showing up to worship? What's some other ways you can? Talk to him. Yeah, bring him into your mind as much as you can. Some people have repetitive prayers that they say. When I was 17, my godfather, who is Greek Orthodox, taught me the words Kyrie Jesu Christe eleison me in Greek, which is Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Kyrie Jesu Christe eleison me. So I've been saying that over in my head since I was 17. I'm 47, so what? That's 30 years, right? So sometimes it goes like a wheel. And if I'm in my car and somebody like slams on their brake and I have to slam on my brake, I'll yell out, Kyrie Jesu Christe eleison me. And my 13-year-old is like, Mom, you're insane. <laughs> but one of the ways we can get filled with Jesus is to have um, a repetitive prayer that we say in our minds, or just to say hello today or thank you today. What other ways can we do besides coming to church and trying to think about him? You can study the word, yes. So the, the scripture 
as, as I know that your priests are telling you, is such a miraculous book because it lives with you. It lives in relationship with you and it changes you. So if going into the landscape of your mind is too intimidating to start with, I would say read the scripture every day. Or better yet, read a little bit and then enter the landscape of your mind. Get started with the word. It'll anchor you. It'll help to dispel some of the temptation. Great idea. Worship, pray, read the word. What else? Fellowship. Meet with other people that are following Jesus and talk about him with them. Even if you're making pancakes, it doesn't matter what you're doing, but you can talk about Jesus with other people. What else? Yes, listen. Empty your mind and be present with someone else. That repossesses you with the love of Christ. You don't actually have to be thinking about Jesus. You can just be manifesting his love, right? In varieties of ways. I can't imagine all the ways you are doing this. Every time you serve him, you're, you're being filled with him again. You're, you're being saturated with his presence. Serving, being in a group, praying, coming to church. Yes, yes, yes. Walking the walk. I think sometimes in the Episcopal Church, we try to be so welcoming, but then we don't actually say what it is we practice, and we do have a very serious faith practice, and uh, that's important. So Mary Magdalene sticks really close to Jesus, and when things get bad and everybody leaves, she doesn't go. She's not afraid of his pain, and you don't have to be afraid of people's pain either. You can be very present with Christ by going to people who are ill, who are struggling, who are suffering, and just sitting there with them. Don't even have to say anything. Just be present with them. She just stood there at the cross. In none of the Gospels does she say anything at all. But she doesn't leave. And then I find it fascinating that she rests on the Sabbath after Jesus has died. I find it fascinating that God rested. I mean, everybody was in total agony and God still observed the Sabbath. But I still find excuses not to take a break in my crazy life, you know? If there was any time to have an excuse not to, not to wait, that was it. But God still waited on that day. And Mary did too. She didn't go to the tomb. She waited. So we can be patient, right? Sometimes. And then... In the Gospel of John, it says she goes to the tomb before the sun is risen. I didn't realize that um, the moment before the sun is risen is the darkest moment of the night. Did, did you know that? I, I didn't know that. Uh, so she goes in the darkness. So sometimes to follow Christ, we've got to go into the darkness, not be afraid of the darkness, and be there. Um, and she was so vulnerable. She cries. She's just broken open, and that's when... That's when Christ is most revealed to her. Uh, a man who's a reformed alcoholic said to me just today, he said, you know where I think you can find God best? And I said, where? And he said, at the end of your rope. And Mary Magdalene was at the end of her rope. She was absolutely distraught, crying her eyes out when Jesus shows up and says her name and she recognizes him. So I often think that moment of greatest encounter with God is when we feel like everything's about to be over forever, and that's when, that's when God does his best work, you know. Um, she was just, it was it for her, and then all of a sudden, there he is. Oh. And then he tells her to go and tell everyone he's risen, and she says, I have seen the Lord. That's the last thing she says. 
And what fascinates me about Mary Magdalene is then she's gone. She's not in Acts. She's not in the epistle. She's just gone. We don't know what happened to her. There are all kinds of stories. There's one story that she goes into the woods and grows hair all over her body, and they call her Harry Mary. <laughs> I know, it sounds terrible. There's another one where she goes to France and sits in a cave forever. Then there's, of course, all that Da Vinci Code stuff where she and Jesus actually get married, and oh, Americans were so fascinated by sex, you know. Oh. But we really don't know what happened to her. There's no biblical reference of her after that at all. There's one gospel of Mary Magdalene. It's a Coptic gospel, but there's only one copy, and it wasn't written until like the year 300. That's pretty late. So the truth is we have no idea. She just disappears. But I wonder, you know, in, in our day and age, and in this state in particular, mental health issues are, are so big. Look at the shooting that happened. That boy was so ill, and we weren't taking care of him, and we weren't fighting his demons. We just let him sit around until he caused all this violence. What if we took mental health issues more seriously? And what if we helped people by giving them a saint and saying, just because you fight demons doesn't mean that God doesn't love you? Because Jesus always loves the demoniac. He doesn't love the demons, but he always loves the demoniac. It's never their fault. And it's not your fault or my fault when we have terribly destructive thoughts or when we do stupid things. If we could only differentiate between our own sinfulness and ourselves and do that for the people we love, I think we'd be in a lot better shape. So it's my hope that Mary Magdalene can be a saint for all who struggle with anxiety or depression or anything, that they could have a way to find Jesus too. So I hope this has been helpful tonight. I hope you're going to go on that Yukon dog sledding adventure of your mind and try it out and uh, conquer those demons and temptations and get stronger and stronger and stronger in Christ because there's a lot of battles out there that he needs us to fight for. And um, we got work to do. Thank you. So do we have a few minutes for questions? We want to do a few questions. But Joe, you point at me when it's 744. Okay. All right. So do we have any questions? Yes, sir. That's right. That's right. Amen. Wait on the Lord. And that's a great point to make. They're not only are demons, what are the other guys, the good guys? Angels. There are those too. There's a lot that's there to help us and the Holy Spirit and all kinds of things. In fact, Mary Magdalene begins her life with the demons. She ends her life in all four of the Gospels with the angels. The angels are there at the tomb, right? So we can know that it's not just the bad stuff. We got a lot of good stuff on our side as well. And if we look for those angels, those messengers of God, those moments of inspiration, they're all around us. We have to look for them, just like we have to look for the demons too, yeah. 
Yes, I agree. The Lord is waiting for us and anxious for us to come to him. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. You are not your thoughts. Right. Amen to that. Yes. Yes, it's right in the back. It's called Healed, How Mary Magdalene Was Made Well. And it's in the back. There's also two books about Lent. One is called Organic God. So if you love gardening, it's about all the images that Jesus uses from nature. And it unpacks them. Because we're so divorced from nature, we, we miss a lot of the the, the richness of his imagery. That's one Lenten book. The other one is called Get Over Yourself. God's here. Uh, the word for repent, it's an old word. Sometimes, you know, language is always shifting. And sometimes we don't retranslate the Bible fast enough. So the word repent is sort of a dead word. But what it really means is metanoia means turning towards God. It's the opposite of paranoia. Paranoia would be to turn to yourself. So metanoia means turning away from yourself to God. So a better translation is that Jesus walked around and said, get over yourself. God's here. Instead of repent, the kingdom of God is here. So that book is about repentance. So yes, there was another question. Joe. What it might look like for the church to effectively care for those mental illness. That's a great question. Well, and Joe, you know this well, the clergy need to have a great file of the best therapists in town who hopefully are Christians too, so they're not going to tell people they're crazy for believing in God. Then to help people identify, uh, the reason why I love the word demon, I know it sounds medieval, but I think it helps people because it has a power. And we've so sanitized mental health that sometimes we make people feel powerless we talk about disease and all of this. Well, disease is something that we can fight with medicine, but it's very difficult to just do it ourselves. Demons can be fought. So there is a sense of empowering someone to let them know that their self-destructive thinking is not, doesn't belong to them, and it's not of God, and it can be fought. And there's hope in that, I, I believe. So, but to have you know, programs, support groups, but also, I do think we need to be partners with the mental health profession. I mean, my husband's a therapist, so obviously I'm, I'm wed to this. Ha, ha, ha. But uh, um, I do think we need to use them, and, and we need to be careful when it's out of our league, because there are mental health issues that are way beyond us that we do need to have professional help from. But I also think that the mental health profession needs our help and the love that Christ can bring. We need to, to, we need to get back together again. Freud was a brilliant man, but he believed that religion was a neurosis. So when he started the therapeutic practice, there was always a negative vision about religion, and I believe that was fundamentally wrong, and we need to come back together again. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Right. Apostle to the apostles. Thank you. Up, that is the right her. Ancient Latin title is Apostola Apostolorum, which is of the apostle to the apostles. What a wonderful title. Better than prostitute. I definitely like it better than prostitute. Yes. Ah. Well, 
while I, I love the thought, and there are some kind of liberal strains that, that I, there, there may be evidence. We know there are women deacons in the, in the book of Acts. There's no real concrete evidence of women priests, although they're in the catacombs. There are some very feminine-looking priests, but that's, they're all kind of blurry. So, um, but, so I think it was unlikely she would have been a bishop. The word uh, woman in the, in the ancient Greek of the Gospels is gine, which means um, walking womb or birther. So a woman was not considered human. She was considered a vessel for the purpose of having sons. So um, that's what makes Jesus' behavior so radically loving. It's just amazing. You know, the longest conversation he has in any of the Gospels is with a woman that's that, you know, that Elizabeth Taylor woman who had been married like five times at the well? He talks with her. So amazing, his behavior. Um, But I don't think that women could have advanced that quickly in the church to become bishops. But that's only my scholastic opinion. I, I wish I would have loved it, but... Um, other questions? Yes. Really? Yes. Well, it does cover the four Gospels because they are a bit different. Absolutely. John in particular is very unique. Uh, it doesn't go one, two, three, four, though. You kind of, yeah. Yes, it does, though. It does treat them separately. Mm-hmm. Any other questions? Great questions. <laughs> great, great questions. Well, you guys are all wonderful congregation, I can tell. And uh, Joe is doing an amazing job. You're very blessed to have him. So, um, yes.